you can see in our outline that you also have in your books, last week we discussed the first of three very important announcements that were made, and that was the announcement which was made to Zacharias, the father of John the Baptist. Now this morning we're going to look at two more announcements. It's an awful lot of territory to cover, and so um, I hope you can stick with me. I'm going to try to talk as fast as I, I can. I am not a morning person. If you would come to my night study in Whispering Pines, you would find that to be true. I am definitely a, um, a night person because I, I really start to get wound up about 10 o'clock at night, my husband says. <laughs> so um, with only one cup of coffee, just pray that I can really have my mind together and um, get this out because it's really fascinating, a lot of fascinating stuff to, to discuss. But we're going to start by looking at the announcement which was made to Mary. And under that section, we're going to look at four subdivisions. We're going to look at her supernatural pregnancy. We're going to look at her separation for peace when she went and visited her cousin Elizabeth. And we'll talk about a statement of privilege which was made by Elizabeth, also known as the Beatitude. And then we'll look at the Magnificat, which was something that Mary said or sang. I don't know. I think she spoke it, but they call it a song of praise. And uh, those, that's where we're going before we look at the announcement which was made to Joseph. Most of the morning will be spent in the announcement which was made to Mary. So let's begin by looking at a supernatural pregnancy. And for this, I want to read verses 26 to 38 of Luke chapter 1. Remember, Luke presents the um, genealogy of the Lord Jesus through his mother Mary. So now he is going to give to us the birth announcement about the Lord Jesus Christ from Mary's perspective. It will be interesting to see that Matthew gives us the account of the incarnation and the announcement and everything about the Lord Jesus from Joseph's perspective. And that makes sense because he also gave us the lineage of Jesus Christ through Joseph. All right, so in Luke, we're going to be looking at everything from Mary's perspective, starting with verse 26 where it says, and in the sixth month, what sixth month is that talking about? Does anybody know? If you just look up ahead, you'd figure it out. Elizabeth had conceived um, miraculously because she had been barren. She was the mother of John the Baptist. She conceived miraculously. God rejuvenated her body. And she, remember, hid herself away for five months. Now we are told that it is the sixth month. So you know that Elizabeth is now six months pregnant. It was in the sixth month that the angel Gabriel was sent from God unto a city of Galilee named Nazareth to a virgin espoused to a man whose name was Joseph of the house of David. And the virgin's name was Mary. And the angel came in unto her and said, Hail, thou that art highly favored, the Lord is with thee. Blessed art thou among women. And when she saw him, she was troubled at his saying and cast in her mind what manner of salutation this should be. And the angel said unto her, Fear not, Mary, for thou hast found favor with God. And behold, thou shalt conceive in thy womb and bring forth a son and shalt call his name, call his name Jesus, all capitals. And he shall be great and shall be called the Son of the Highest. And the Lord God shall give unto him the throne of his father David. And he shall reign over the house of Jacob forever, and of his kingdom there shall be no end. Then Mary unto, then said Mary unto the angel, How shall this be, seeing I know not a man? And the angel answered and said unto her, The Holy Ghost shall come upon thee, and the power of the highest shall overshadow thee. Therefore also that holy thing which shall be born of thee 
shall be called the Son of God. And behold, thy cousin Elizabeth, she hath also conceived a son in her old age. And this is the sixth month with her, who was called barren. For with God, nothing shall be impossible. You might want to underline that verse. With God, nothing shall be impossible. And Mary said, Behold, the handmaid of the Lord, be it unto me according to thy word. And the angel departed from her. So here we are told that when Elizabeth, the wife of Zacharias, was six months pregnant with John the Baptist, Gabriel was once again sent to planet Earth. This is actually his third visit to Earth, but it's the second visit in the New Testament. He also visited Daniel, remember, in the Old Testament. So within a short period of time, he comes to Earth again, this time with a much more, uh, even, uh, even greater announcement than he had made to Zacharias regarding the herald of the Messiah. This time he was coming with the announcement of the birth of the Messiah himself. Now there are, there's only one other angel in Scripture, which is given a name that we have a name for and who is that Michael well, only you know there were some pictures that I could have used for um, overheads but I have a terrible time finding pictures of angels that are not women you ever notice that when you go to the store especially Christmas time they're all women there are no accounts in the Bible of female um, angels I actually found one in a coloring book that was the angel Gabriel making his announcement to Mary and I was going to use it, except I noticed that Gabriel had breasts. <laughs> and I thought, boy, this person forgot to read the scripture. Isn't it amazing? You have to be careful about pictures, because children conceive an awful lot of things by pictures, and so do we. And so many, as I've been teaching the Bible, I have found that so many pictures are wrong. Anyway, so here's a male angel. The only other angel mentioned by name in the Bible is Michael. They were both archangels. They both are archangels. They both stand before the presence of God. It's interesting to look at the two ministries of the angels that are given names, Michael and um, Gabriel, because we always find that Gabriel pronounces. He makes announcements like we see him doing here, whereas Michael protects. He's the protective angel. Gabriel, Gabriel foretells. Okay, he gives God's word ahead of time, whereas um, Michael fulfills. He helps God fulfill what he has foretold. We see that also uh, Gabriel declares, whereas Michael defends. That's just another way of saying pronounces and protects. But they have those two ministries. And we find that people have the same two ministries that the angels do. So it's very interesting. There are some who are proclaimers and some who are doers, right? And we need both. Okay, so this message, this very, very special message from Gabriel was with regard to the birth of the Messiah himself, and it was delivered to a young, very young, girls back in those days, I know this horrifies us, but girls back in those days were usually betrothed or engaged at around 12 or 13, and then they would remain betrothed or engaged for about a year until make sure they entered into puberty. So a lot of girls got married about 13 or 14 years of age. So, so Mary was probably, at this point in time, since she's not married yet, she's only engaged, she's probably 12 or 13, okay? So the announcement was made to a very young girl, Jewish virgin, in fact, who lived where? Look at your maps. Where does it tell you she lived? They find it on the map. I want you to find Nazareth. She lived in Nazareth of Galilee. And that humble, godly girl was named Mary. And in Hebrew, what is her name? What was Moses' sister's name in Miriam, right? Her name was Miriam. 
And that's what she would be used to hearing as Miriam. Now, in the days of the Lord's birth, while you're looking at Galilee, at Nazareth of Galilee, Galilean Jews, now Galilee was the northern, one of the northern provinces of Israel. They were looked down upon with disdain by Judean Jews, those who were from the southern province of Judea. The Galileans were essentially considered inferiors by the Judeans because for the most part the Galileans were just your common fishermen and farmers. In general, the Judeans, the ones from the, the south, and particularly those around Jerusalem and that vicinity, they were generally more educated and more sophisticated. They were your city folk, you know. And because of that, they mistakenly believed that this made them wiser and um, consequently more godly than their Galilean brothers. However, it's very interesting that this wasn't necessarily true at all. The Lord Jesus had how many apostles originally? Twelve. And out of them, only one was a Judean. The other 11 were from Galilee. And do you know the name of the one who was a Judean? Judas Iscariot. So what does that tell you? Now, of all the towns in Galilee, Nazareth was particularly despised. This was partially due to the fact that there was a Roman garrison which was stationed not too far from Nazareth. And so there were many, many Roman soldiers which patrolled that particular area. And that made Nazareth kind of like Fayetteville. It made it a military town. And as often is the case with military towns, then and even yet today, sin and corruption abounded as greedy men sought to profit from the carnality of the many soldiers who were stationed there. Nazareth was approximately 70 miles. You see, on, I think you have a little miles chart there somewhere. It was approximately 70 miles north of Jerusalem. And it was situated about halfway on the main road between Jerusalem and those northern Phoenician uh, coastal cities of Tyre and Sidon. So about halfway between Jerusalem and Tyre and Sidon was uh, Nazareth. And it was on the main road. So also going through Nazareth and spending the night at this halfway point would be many Greek merchants and Phoenician mer merchants and of course the Roman soldiers and all kinds of other travelers. So Nazareth catered to the needs and the greeds of those who would stop for the night and spend money on their pleasures. And I'm not going to get into details, but you can imagine what that made Nazareth, what kind of a city. Well, the wicked reputation of the city was probably best described by a man named Nathaniel when he was first told about Jesus Jesus of Nazareth by his friend Philip. Remember what Nathaniel said sarcastically and with scorn? He said, can there any good thing come out of Nazareth? I mean, it was just known throughout Israel that Nazareth was a pretty corrupt city. Um, did anything good come out of Nazareth? Yes, there was a godly virgin woman, a young girl, who even in that dark day and degenerate time was able to maintain her purity. Mary came from Nazareth. There was a just and righteous man named Joseph who came out of Nazareth. And then, of course, we know that the Lord Jesus Christ also spent about probably 28 of his 33 years in Nazareth. So in answer to Nathaniel's question, yes, 
there can good things come out of Nazareth, and good things did. So what this demonstrates to us, really, is that environment is no excuse for a failure at holy living. Is it possible to live a holy, pure, just, righteous life in a dark day, in a dark place? Do you think there's righteous people in Fayetteville? I know there are because I used to attend Bible study there for four years. There's many godly people over in Fayetteville and other cities that are even worse. In fact, as you see in this picture here, the darker the environment, the brighter the light of the godly Christian can shine. Now, it's interesting that the Lord Jesus did choose Nazareth of Galilee in which to live the vast majority of his life because it's located in an area which tended to be more Gentile than Jewish. You know, Gentiles are non-Jews. And Galilee was even known as Galilee of the Gentiles. So with Gabriel's great announcement of the promised Jewish Messiah being proclaimed in a place of Israel which was so greatly intersected and even populated by Gentiles, he was in effect, Gabriel in effect, was giving another unspoken message from God. He was saying, in effect, my son, speaking for God, my son will come from a family of Nazareth of Galilee and he will live most of his earthly life there to show the world that he's not only the savior of any Jew who will believe on him, but also, as probably everybody in this room, any Gentile who will also put his faith and trust in him. Well, Gabriel greeted Mary by saying, Hail, which is just like us saying, Hey, <laughs> or in the northern, the northerners say what? Hi. That's what he didn't want to really scare her too badly. She's just a young girl, you know. So he said, Hail, hi. Thou that art highly favored, the Lord is with thee. Blessed art thou among women. We see that in verse 28. Notice that speaking for God, Gabriel did not say here, Blessed art thou above women. Did he say that? Is Mary above all other women? Is she above you and I? No, he said, blessed art thou among women. So the mighty archangel began his announcement by telling Mary that she was a highly privileged recipient of God's grace. That's the same word which is used for favor in that verse. At this point now, remember, Mary apparently did not know about the previous announcement that Gabriel had made to Zacharias and Elizabeth. And so therefore she did not know that the birth of the forerunner of the Messiah had already been predicted. Remember, Zacharias has been struck dumb. He can't speak. And what did Elizabeth do as soon as she conceived? It said she went and hid herself for five months. Yes, she wanted to make sure this was she wasn't going to miscarry or whatever before she said anything. So at this point, Mary knew absolutely nothing about the previous announcement that had been made to her cousin. So she was troubled at uh, what Gabriel told her. She thought, you know, what in the world does this mean? What could this possibly mean? Also, we find that she was fearful. And this is not unusual because throughout the scriptures, even if you go to these rough, tough men, older men, Mary's just a child, really, in our estimation. But if you go to these godly prophets of God, when they encountered um, an angel, what was their first reaction? Every one of them. John or uh, Daniel or 
um, Gideon or Isaiah, and all of them were very, very frightened. Some of them even passed out. So we're not surprised that young Mary was fearful here. And so the, the next words that Gabriel spoke to her were, Fear not, fear not, Mary, for thou hast found favor with God. Now his words, therefore, not only were spoken to ease her fear, but they were also given to her to indicate that her position, you know, as the future mother of the Messiah, which she hadn't heard yet, but that that was a precious gift of favor from God. This, it's the same word I told you um, as is translated grace 130 times in the New Testament. It's exactly the same word. So you could say that she found grace in God's sight instead of favor. They can be used interchangeably. In other words, Mary's favor from God in being the one chosen as the vessel by which the Lord Jesus Christ would enter into this world was a result of what? Her favor was a result of God's divine grace. It really didn't have anything to do with Mary. She was the vessel he chose. It had to do with his divine grace. Now she was, you know, he didn't go out and pick some um, little social butterfly who all she cared about was going to the next party. He picked a godly, pure young girl. Of course, he had chosen her from before the foundation of the earth. He made sure she came from the right lineage and all that sort of thing. But she, she was a godly girl, and we'll see this. Now, in Luke verse 1, verses 31 to 33, he then, Gabriel proceeded to reveal to Mary the subject of his announcement. And basically what he does here is he forecasts three coming events. And those three events of the coming Messiah really tie in perfectly with the three purposes that Jesus came to this earth. So let's look at those. Three revelations from Gabriel and then how they tie into each one of the Lord's three purposes for coming to earth. First of all, he told her that um, she was going to have a son. And what was she to name her son? Jesus. Now, Jesus is the Greek spelling and the Greek, well, it's not the Greek pronunciation because it's Jesus, but it's the Greek English spelling for the Jewish word Yeshua. Or um, there's three different, Yeshua, Yeshua, or Yehoshua. <laughs> In other words, it's uh, the same name as Yehovah, uh, Jehovah. It has the same, you know, the Hebrew does not have vowels. It's all consonants. And Jesus, I just saw this in my last Friends of Israel magazine. I thought that was interesting. Jesus and Yahweh, you know, that's the unspoken name that the Jews were never allowed to say for Jehovah God. Um, those two names, Jesus and Yahweh, have the same consonants, which is very fascinating. What Jesus means literally is Yahweh saves. It means Jehovah saves. Now, the first reason the Lord Jesus came to earth was for what? To save. He came to, well, we're going to use ours because it's easier to remember that way. But he came to redeem lost men back to God. He came as man's savior. So that ties in with the first announcement that he would be called Yahweh saves. Secondly, Gabriel told Mary that her son would be called the son of the highest. And that's the same in Hebrew, the highest as the most high God that you read about in the, uh, that's a name for God that you read about in the Old Testament is El Elyon. So he would be the son of El Elyon. And that's a title which speaks of his second purpose, 
the Lord's second purpose in coming to this world was to reveal his father to men. He came to redeem men to God, and he came to reveal God to men. He's the son of the highest. So if anybody would know the highest, the father, it would be the son. So he's going to tell men about the father. Also, Gabriel told Mary that this special child that she was to bear would receive the throne of David. That's in verse 32. And he would reign over the house of Jacob, meaning the house of Israel, for how long? Everybody, how long would he reign? Forever. Okay, so this promise corresponds to the Lord's third purpose in coming to earth, and that was he came to reign. He came to reign as eternal king over both Israel, the house of Jacob, and the entire world, as a matter of fact. Now, you know, of course, that he was rejected at his first advent, his first coming. He came to reign, but they rejected him. However, when he comes the second time, he will definitely come to reign as king of kings and lord of lords. I'll put this back up because I saw some of you writing that down. All right, now Mary responded to Gabriel's announcement by asking something that you would probably ask if you were in her sandals as well. How? How in the world is this going to be, seeing I know not a man? In other words, how, how is this going to take place since I'm a virgin? Here's her own testimony to the fact that she's a virgin. Now, this was not, I want you to make sure you understand, this was not a question of unbelief, as had been with Zacharias's response to Gabriel back in Luke 1.18. Rather, Mary's question was a request for an explanation as to how this amazing miracle would happen. Some of these transparencies are very difficult to write on, but I had her saying here, how... Oh, I'm a virgin, okay? <laughs> this is taken from that movie. You might recognize it, the movie. Jesus, I've got some pictures from that movie. Um, so her, her uh, question was not in unbelief. It was really asking for an explanation. Zechariah, on the other hand, should not have doubted the word of God spoken by his messenger, even though both he and Elizabeth were both far beyond the normal age for bearing children, and even when she'd been young, Elizabeth had been barren, yet Zacharias should not have questioned Gabriel um, and the promise of God that they would bear a son. God had already proven, you see, in the past that such a miracle was possible. You see, there was a precedent for what God told Zacharias. Somebody else had been barren all of her life and had been old when she finally conceived a child, and who was that? Sarah. And Abraham had been old, too old, really very old. Also, God rejuvenated both of their bodies, essentially. So Zacharias was a priest. He was an old man who had lived all his life studying the scriptures. He knew these things. He also knew about Rachel and Rebecca and Hannah and some other women who had been barren and how, what God had done for them. So as a priest and as a true believer of Jehovah God, as a man, as a someone who knew the scriptures, he knew all of these things. He also knew that God is the God of the impossible. On the other hand, there had never, ever been a virgin birth before. There was no precedent for that. And yet we find that Mary did not doubt God's words through Gabriel, nor did she doubt God's ability to perform such an unprecedented miracle. She merely wondered how God was going to do this since she was a virgin. So because her question was an honest request 
For more information, Gabriel gave her the most detailed explanation in the scripture. It's not very detailed, but it's the most detailed one in the scripture concerning the conception of Christ. Now, it was not the birth of Christ that was miraculous. It wasn't a virgin birth, was it? It was a normal birth, just like you and I would give birth to a child. It was the conception that was um, um, the miracle, that was supernatural. So we're going to try to call it, if I remember, the virgin conception of Christ. Now, this is described in the most mysterious and the most delicate uh, language possible and using very simple terms, very beautiful language here. Here's what Gabriel told Mary. Let's see if I've got the, let me put the right transparency up here. He told her that the Holy Spirit, the Holy Ghost, would come upon her and the power of the highest, and that again is El Elyon, beginning of God, would overshadow her so that the holy thing which would be born of her would be called the Son of God. Now, I underlined all three persons of the triune Godhead are mentioned in that description of how this would occur. We have the Holy Spirit, the Holy Ghost, we've got God, the highest, and we've got the Son of God. All three members of the Trinity mentioned in the virgin conception of Jesus Christ. Now, it's really interesting to discover that it took Luke a total of 16 verses to give us the human genealogy of the Lord Jesus Christ, but it only took him part of one verse to give us the divine genealogy of the Lord Jesus Christ. He was born when the Holy Spirit, the God the Highest, overshadowed Mary. It took one part of one verse. That's interesting. Well, due to the fact that Gabriel stated that the Holy Ghost or Holy Spirit I like spirit better than ghost because, unfortunately, children think of, woo, you know, when they hear ghost. Holy Spirit would come upon her. Some, because of this, some Christians have mistakenly interpreted this. And if you hear my old tapes, I think I almost sort of interpreted it this way, but this is wrong. Some Christians have mistakenly interpreted this to mean that the Holy Spirit is the Father of the Lord Jesus Christ. Because you hear about the Holy Spirit, you know, overshadowing Mary. But that is not true. So if you had that conception, sort of like I did, I don't know if I ever verbalized it that way, but I kind of thought, if somebody had said, who's the father of the Lord Jesus? Well, I'd say God the Father. But who was there at the conception? Well, God the Holy Spirit. So is he the Father? I would be confused. But to set anybody else straight, like I had to set myself straight, God the Holy Spirit is, was not the Father, the divine Father of the Lord Jesus Christ. The Holy Trinity, as you know, consists of three persons. God the Father, God the Son, God the Holy Spirit. God the Holy Spirit is not the Father. God the Father is God the Father, right? So the Holy Spirit was merely the person of the Trinity who presided over the conceptual entrance of God the Son into the womb of Mary. So I guess if you want to have a Father for Jesus Christ, it's got to be God the Father, not God the Holy Spirit. God the Holy Spirit was more like John Butler says this. The Holy Spirit is no more the father of Jesus Christ than a doctor is the father of a child when he surgically implants the male sperm of a man in the womb of a woman. Okay, so he was really, the Holy Spirit was like the one presiding over this event, this marvelous mystery. And don't ever try to really understand it because it's impossible. Now we observe also that uh, in Gabriel's words to Mary, he said that the one to be born in her was holy. 
Now, Gabriel said that holy thing which shall be born of thee shall be called the Son of God. And I want you to understand and know this and make a mark of it in your Bible that the word thing is not in the original Greek. Just to make sure, I got out my Greek New Testament. I did study Greek. I am Greek. And the, the word thing, believe me, is not in the original. So what it really reads is um, that holy which shall be born of thee. Now you say, what's the big deal? Well, the big deal is that this verse, unfortunately, has been used by pro-abortionists. Can you believe that? I mean, they're really looking hard, but they have used this verse to attempt to prove their point of view that the fetus in the womb is not a person, but that it's a thing. And they point to this verse because it says that holy thing, but it is not in the original manuscript is not in the original Greek. It really says that holy which shall be born of thee. This statement, this statement means that the one to be born in Mary was to be the incarnation of holiness, holiness personified. Also, the conception itself was characterized by holiness. Whatever happened there in that mysterious union of God the Father and God the Holy Spirit and Mary, whatever happened was was nothing to be ashamed of. It was purely holy. That's what he's saying. And that is in stark contrast to every other human conception, which is why David, King David, could very rightfully say, as could every one of us in this room, in sin did my mother conceive me. Every one of us has been born in sin, but not Christ. Everything about his conception and his birth was holy. Every human being, as I just said, beginning with Cain and Abel, who has ever been born, was born unholy because we have all inherited the Adamic sin nature. Only Jesus Christ was born holy without inheriting, you know, the sin nature from Adam. It tells us in Hebrews 7.26 that Jesus Christ is holy, harmless, undefiled, separate from sinners. Now, you might ask, how is this possible? Even though we know that Jesus did not have a human father, nonetheless, would he not have inherited the Adamic sin nature from his physical, natural mother? Why wouldn't he have inherited the sin nature from Mary? And the answer to that is... Um, he did not inherit a sin nature from Mary. And what I want to discuss at this point in time is some interesting biological facts about blood. Okay? A vital reason. This is why those even in churches who say the virgin birth is not important are totally wrong. The virgin birth is very important. A vital reason for Christ's virgin birth, or I should say conception, virgin conception, was to ensure that he had innocent blood, okay? If his conception uh, was to be holy, therefore, his blood could not be corrupt. It couldn't be, it had to be totally innocent, had to be totally sinless. According to Leviticus 17.11, the curse of sin affected the blood. You know, the life of the flesh is where? in the blood. So when we inherit the Adamic sin nature from our parents all the way back to Adam, it's because we inherit their blood. 
the sin nature, the life of the flesh is in the blood, the sin nature is carried to us in the blood, through the blood. So if Jesus was to be our Savior and we are to be saved by the shedding of his innocent blood, then his blood needed absolutely to be pure and uncorrupted. It needed to be holy. It says in 1 Peter 1, 18 and 19, but we are, we are not redeemed with corruptible things, but with the precious blood of Christ as a lamb without blemish and without spot. It says in 1 John 1, 17, the blood of Jesus Christ cleanseth us from all sin. Unclean blood, you see, could not cleanse us, right? We had to be cleansed with the precious, clean blood of Jesus Christ. So the virgin birth was necessary so that Christ would have holy blood. Now you say, well, how is this possible? He still had a human mother. Did he not get his blood from his mother? Well, he didn't. Did you know that from the time of conception to the birth of an infant, not one single drop of blood ever passes from the mother to the child. Did you know that every single drop of blood in the newborn is produced with, within the child itself and that it is solely the result of the introduction of the male sperm? So the blood is produced by the introduction of the male sperm and then the child develops its own blood within itself, does not get one drop of blood from its mother. So when God, you see way back in the Garden of Eden, first created woman, he already had in mind the manner in which he was going to be able to bring his son into this world sinless without receiving the stained blood which transmits Adam's sin nature from one generation to the other. And this is the truth of 1 Corinthians 15, 21, 22, which I just had up here a minute ago, where it says, for since by man came death, it's by our fathers that we inherit the sin nature. Since by man came death, for as in Adam, not Eve, but as in Adam all die. God created woman in such a way that no blood would pass, and here's a section of blood that you might want to find interesting to look at, just to give you something to look at. Um, where was it? God created woman in such a way that no blood would pass from her to the offspring of her womb. And he gave Christ a virgin conception so that the blood created within him was not corrupted um, by either her or by the male influence. So it was a perfect solution, wasn't it? Perfect solution, but again, it makes the virgin conception of the Lord Jesus Christ a very, very vital part of our Christian faith. The only way the Redeemer of fallen humanity could be born sinless was to be conceived by God, who alone is sinless. So the conception of Jesus Christ in the womb of Mary was not going to be accomplished, you see, with the aid of her espoused, with the aid of Joseph. Uh, which would, of course, have been the natural way. But rather, it was going to be accomplished the supernatural way. The creative power of the Holy Spirit was going to overshadow Mary just as the Shekinah glory had once overshadowed the Ark of the Covenant 
in the Holy of Holies in the Tabernacle of Israel. If that gives you kind of a visual idea of what went on there with Mary. Now the result of this supernatural conception would be, as it states in Luke 1.35, that the Holy One to be born would be called the Son of who? Son of God. Now the very first divine pronouncement regarding the coming of man's Redeemer, which was spoken directly by God himself, gave man a glimpse of this one whose conception would be special. The Lord God, see this was nothing new. A virgin birth was nothing new. This was the very first prophecy ever given back in Genesis 3.15. The Lord God spoke this one, by the way, directly, not through a prophet. He gave this prophecy directly, and he spoke of a woman's seed. Mary's impregnation is the only instance in all of human history that a woman had a seed within her that did not originate from a human male. I mean, because every other time you read of seed in the Bible, it's his seed. The only time you ever read of it being her seed is in this prophecy of Genesis 3.15, speaking of the virgin conception of Mary. The idea of a virgin birth should not, therefore, have been foreign to the Jews' understanding of how their Messiah would come into this world. world. Also, Isaiah 7.14 very important verse supports a virgin conception as well now unfortunately that's the verse where it says that a virgin shall conceive and bear a son and shall call his name Emmanuel that's Isaiah 7:14. now unfortunately the Jewish scholars who took it look at this verse always always mistranslated the the word for virgin which in hebrew is the word alma a-l-m-a -A. some of us know women named alma their name means virgin they mistranslated that word to refer instead to a married woman uh, it was only recently however that jewish scholars have reviewed all this and said we made a mistake that's wrong because every time the word alma is used somewhere else in the old testament it's always definitely speaking of a virgin this is the only time they took alma and made it to mean a married woman so the jewish scholars have revised their thinking on this they now say that isaiah 7:14 does say a virgin shall conceive and bear a child and his name shall be god with us um, and it's interesting, you know, this was given, this prophecy was given by Isaiah to King Ahaz to be a sign. King Ahaz needed a sign. I won't get into all that. But so would, would it have been a spectacular sign for Isaiah to say, I'm going to give you a sign, Ahaz. A married woman is going to have a child. No big deal. <laughs> That's stupid. Married women have children all the time. He said, a virgin shall have a child. A virgin shall bear a son. Now, the Jews have these verses. You know, they have Genesis 3.15. They have Isaiah 7.14. They also have another very mysterious verse, Jeremiah 31.22. I don't know if you know about this one, but there, Jeremiah, God's spokesman, said, the Lord hath created a new thing in the earth. Here's what it is. A woman shall compass a man. Now, that's kind of mysterious language. And the Jews, again, the scholars, missed 
or still miss the significance of this verse in light of the virgin conception of Jesus Christ. Yet even if you go to their own interpretations of this verse, their own interpretations should wake them up a little bit because the Jewish rabbis have confessed that Jeremiah 31:22 suggests that the Messiah would have an unusual birth. They even say that Jeremiah seems to be suggesting that the Messiah would have no earthly father. And here's the exact wording of one rabbinical interpretation of this verse. They said it says this, the birth, quote, the birth of Messiah shall be like the dew, D-E-W, of the Lord as drops upon the grass without the action of man, end of quote. See, it's amazing to me, their own Old Testament gives them all these proofs of who Jesus Christ is, and they even get so close in their own understanding that, mm, let's see, it looks like the Messiah is going to come without a human father, and yet they get so close, but they miss it. They totally miss it. It's a shame, isn't it? I mean, Satan has done quite a job putting the scales on the vast majority of the Jewish eyes. Pray for Jewish people. All right, Luke 1.36, um, Gabriel gave Mary a, a confirmation, or we could call it a sign, that what he told her was true. Now, this sign or this confirmation that what he said was true was going to was that uh, her cousin Elizabeth, although old and barren, had conceived a child and was six months pregnant. And this was given to Mary both really to substantiate her faith and also to increase it. And then Gabriel added the mighty principle which uh, should silence all skeptics then and even down through the ages who have doubted and even ridiculed the virgin conception of our Lord. Gabriel said, for with God, nothing shall be impossible. I don't understand why Christians or, or people who call themselves Christians can deny the virgin birth. I think they think that it's just too much for God to do. And so they don't think the world out there will swallow it. So they tell people, you don't have to believe in the virgin birth. You know, just accept Jesus and he'll save you. you don't, it's not important to accept the virgin birth. But that's because they, their concept of God is just not big enough. You know, the God who spoke everything into existence that we ever see in this universe certainly can arrange for a virgin birth. We see that even from the creation of woman. He had started arranging all this. It's no problem for him. Like I always say, it's a piece of cake for God. And so remember that. Hide that verse in your heart. That's something that you need to remember when, you know, little tiny problems seem like mountains to you. Because we do that. We start seeing things from our perspective instead of from God's perspective, and we forget who he is. Can he handle your your financial problems? Of course he can. Who is he? He's God, and with God all things are possible. Can he hear, handle your the problems that you might be having with health or with a loved one or with a, a husband, with a child, with another relationship? Whatever your problem. With God, all things are possible. Be like Mary, just in faith believe. She was a good example in that response. And speaking of her response, her response to this announcement was amazing. She said, behold the handmaid, which literally means the, um, 
the doulos, or the, the servant. She said, Here I am, your handmaid, your servant. Be it unto me according to thy word. Now, there are two things about Mary that are demonstrated here in her lovely response. First of all, she responded in faith, and she also responded in submission to the will of God. Um, you know, it would have been one thing if Mary had been hearing all of her life from her, the Jewish teachers that the Messiah was going to come into the world through a virgin. You know, if they had taken their verses of the Old Testament and interpreted them correctly, they would have known. No such thing as her seed, a virgin shall conceive, a woman shall compass a man. Yep, we got it. The Messiah is going to come through a miraculous birth without a husband. If Mary had heard that all of her life, then it would not, her faith would not have been that tremendous. She would have said, yes, I'm the one. This is great, wonderful. And she would have run out and been excited and everybody would have been excited for her. But you see, that wasn't the case. The Jews totally missed that. And they never in their wildest imaginations would have thought that the Messiah would come to the earth through a lowly peasant virgin girl from despicable Nazareth and her lowly carpenter betrothed Joseph and that you know that he would choose that they would that God would choose somebody like that why wouldn't he choose you know the high priest's wife <laughs> or somebody in Jerusalem actually they they thought that the Messiah was going to appear suddenly just suddenly come down from heaven and appear in the temple. That's how they thought he was going to enter into earth, as a full adult, and just show up at the temple. There he was, and everybody would bow down and know who he was. And they get that from Malachi. Actually, Malachi 3.1, it says, And the Lord whom ye seek shall suddenly come to his temple. He did. The Lord Jesus, nobody knew who in the world he was, and all of a sudden one day he showed up in Jerusalem, went to the temple, and with a whip, he drove everybody out. He did suddenly appear at his temple. But they had it all misinterpreted wrong. So in light of the fact that she hadn't heard all these things about the Messiah being born through a virgin, her, her faith is incredible. Also, her submission to the will of God is very incredible because she knew that in doing this and saying, okay, you know, be it according to me, but according to your will, Lord, that her life was literally in, in danger. And there would be severe trials that would bring come into her life because of this. And she would have known this. So, but she didn't ask, and we'll talk about them in a minute. But she didn't ask any further questions, did she? She didn't stutter around and try to give up, give any reasons why not her, why it shouldn't be her, why it should be somebody else. She didn't raise any objection. She just submitted to the Lord's will. And there would definitely be some consequences for Mary. Personally, there would be some consequences because... A pregnancy at that point of time in her life would normally mean the end of her engagement to Joseph. Jewish betrothals were taken far more seriously than engagements today. Nowadays, you hear about people breaking up their engagements, and that sort of thing is no big deal. But in those days, the, per the, the couple was actually considered married when they were betrothed to one another. And the, their engagement or betrothal period lasted for a whole year. And during that time, they, rare, they didn't really even see each other. They communicated to one another through the, a friend of the bridegroom. That's John the Baptist, by the way. Um, but they didn't speak to each other. Hard, I don't even think they really were supposed to see each other during that year. And the reason they had that, the year-long engagement was to prove that the girl wasn't pregnant. They made sure that she was pure. 
And um, so Mary was going to show up now within this one-year engagement period to Joseph. She was going to show up pregnant. Okay, so that would that would be very bad for her personally. By the way, if a man wanted to break, a woman never broke the engagement, but if a man wanted to break the engagement period, he had to actually have a bill of divorcement. He had to divorce her. So there would be consequences for Mary personally. There would also be consequences for her socially because those days in Israel, if an unmarried woman was found to be pregnant, the punishment was extremely severe. Do you know what it was? Stoned to death. I mean, she didn't really have to worry about her other problems because in most cases, she would be, they would be stoned to death. Now, we know Joseph had decided not to do that because he was a righteous man and he was just going to divorce her and put her away privately. He was not going to have her stoned to death, but that would have been one of his options. Finally, there would also be serious consequences for her religiously. Uh, a girl out of wedlock, or uh, pregnant out of wedlock was to be permanently removed from the temple. I mean, she could never go to the temple to offer sacrifices or participate in any of the feasts at the temple or the ordinances, all the stuff that went on there. And she was to be ostracized even by her own family and her friends and her society and from her religion. Yet realizing all of these things, Mary still presented herself totally to the Lord and in submission to his will. She, you see, she was willing to suffer all of the personal shame and the disgrace and the slander and the separation and even the possibility of her own death in order to be obedient to God. That's really something commendable about Mary, is it not? For being so young, too, when you think about how she must have had very, very godly parents who taught her well. Okay, let's look at verse 39 to 41, a separation for peace. It says, And Mary arose in those days and went into the hill country with haste into a city of Judah, or Judea, and entered into the house of Zacharias and saluted Elizabeth. Now, that doesn't mean she did this, okay? It, it was a greeting. She, she greeted her. She didn't even knock on the door, though. The, the scholars point this out. She ran right in the house and, and said, Elizabeth, or whatever she did. Hello, hail, or whatever. She didn't even knock. And it says uh, in verse 41, And it came to pass that when Elizabeth heard the salutation of Mary, the babe leaped in her womb, and, the, and, um, and Elizabeth was filled with the Holy Ghost. Okay, we'll stop there. Now, if you were Mary, and you had just received Gabriel's announcement that we found in um, verses 30 to 37, what would be the first thing that you would do? What did he tell her was her confirmation or her sign that what he had just spoken was going to come to pass, that it was true? He told her, Elizabeth was pregnant. So if you were Mary, first thing you would do is what she did. She ran to see um, her cousin Elizabeth to verify Gabriel's revelation about her. Now, that was no small feat because, speaking of feet, she probably did walk or run the whole way. And if you look at your little maps that I gave you, she, uh, Elizabeth lived down probably near Hebron. She lived in the hill country. The hill country was right outside of Jerusalem. You see it to the west of Jerusalem, um, the city of Hebron, that was a good 75 or 80 mile trip for Mary. But she went, it says, with haste to see Elizabeth in the hill country. Mary went to visit the only other person alive 
who could really understand and rejoice with her. Now, maybe Zacharias could understand and rejoice, but not quite as much as another pregnant woman, right? Plus, he couldn't talk to her because he was dumb. <laughs> Certainly, there was no one in Nazareth who was going to believe her story. Now, as soon as she arrived at the home of Zacharias and Elizabeth, it says she entered and she, she greeted or saluted Elizabeth. And the moment Elizabeth heard Mary's greeting, what happened? The six-month-old baby within Elizabeth's womb, and we know his name was John the Baptist, he leapt for joy. I told you this guy was something else. He was something else. He started young, too. <laughs> six months. He leapt within her womb. Now, a woman at six months can feel movement in her womb, right? I mean, even earlier than that, you can start to feel movement. But this was not just the normal movement of a child in her womb changing his position. This was the sup a supernatural reaction of the unborn herald of the Messiah to the presence of the Christ child within Mary's womb. You know, Gabriel, remember back in verse 15 of Luke chapter 1, Gabriel had told uh, Zacharias that his son would be filled with the Holy Ghost from when? From when? Look at verse 15. Even from his mother's womb. So it's very probable that John the Baptist's filling with the Holy Spirit took place at this very moment when Mary <laughs> entered in the room again, choked up with the Christ child in her womb because I believe as soon as she was finished talking to Gabriel or Gabriel finished talking to her that that's when the Holy Spirit overshadowed her so on her way well we know that because Elizabeth confirms there's already fruit in her womb and the leaping of John the Baptist confirms that so as soon as John started his his uh, duty he took his duty seriously because in, even as a six month old preemie as soon as the, the Messiah was in the same room with him he announced his uh, coming, his arrival, and he leapt with joy. And that's when I believe he was filled with the Spirit. We also find that something else happened when they heard Mary's voice. Elizabeth was also filled with the Holy Spirit. And like her son within her, she too proclaimed the arrival of the Messiah. Except hers was not a, a silent pronouncement. You know, John, unfortunately, John <laughs> could have, I'm sure he would have shouted from the womb. But uh, his was a silent one because he just leapt for joy. We could call it a prenatal leap of joy. But Elizabeth, and this shows you why John was the kind of guy that he was. Elizabeth, his mother, literally shouted the announcement of the Messiah. When she speaks to um, Mary in the next verses that we're going to look at now, verses 42 and 45, you don't see this in the English. It says a loud voice, but in the Greek... It literally means she shouted. She screamed these words. Let's look at them, verses 42 to 45. And she spake out with a loud voice and said, Blessed art thou among women. Did that confirm that, this, that uh, what Gabriel had spoken was true? Isn't that interesting? The very first words that come out of Elizabeth's mouth were the exact words that Gabriel said. Now, did Elizabeth know what Gabriel had said to Mary? Blessed art thou among women? No. So this confirmed right then and there that Gabriel's message was true. And notice too, she didn't say, Blessed art thou above women. Blessed art thou among women. And blessed is the fruit of thy womb. Now how did she know that Mary was even pregnant? Mary might not even have known that she was pregnant. 
she'd only just gotten, you know, you don't show or don't even know until you miss your first period. So she probably didn't, well, she probably did know because she was there when it happened, but this confirmed it. All right, I get myself in a trap sometimes and I just keep talking. <laughs> All right, verse 43, and whence is this to me that the mother of who? My Lord should come to me. Elizabeth was quite a woman. And for lo, as soon as the voice of thy salutation sounded in mine ears, the baby leaped in my womb for joy. And blessed is she that believeth, for there shall be a performance of those things which were told her from the Lord. Statement of privilege is where we are in your outline. All right, I've already talked about how her words perfectly matched what Gabriel said to Mary. Um, she said, not above women. You know, there are, I do have to include this, there are those who um, have misinterpreted so much of the scripture as far as Mary is concerned, and they have put her above all other women. They have even put her above men, and they have made a goddess out of her, and they refer to her as the queen of heaven, and even blasphemously as the co-redemptrix and a co-mediator between God and man, that she also died for their sins, that she was sinless. They teach that she um, rose bodily into heaven, that she remained a virgin all of her life, that she was a perpetual virgin, all kinds of things that... Now, our final authority for faith and practice is God's Word. It is not what men come up with, even if they are within Christendom. Our final authority is what this book says. This is God's word. This is God's revelation to man. So if what we hear out there in the world does not match with this book, we disregard it. And what we hear out there within Christendom about Mary does not match up with this word. So we do not, in this Bible study, and I know as I'm speaking for this church as well, we do not believe those things. And we believe that the scripture definitely shows this. And I'll show you some more reasons as we get into this in the next few minutes. Elizabeth, in continuing her inspired message to Mary, after she said, Blessed art thou among women, she said, And blessed is the fruit of thy womb, and whence is this to me, that the mother of my Lord should come to me? Humanly speaking, there, were, there was no way that Elizabeth would have known these things. She wouldn't even really have known that Mary was pregnant, much less pregnant with her Lord. And that, by the way, was a messianic title for the Messiah. So Elizabeth knew as soon as Mary entered the room, Elizabeth knew. And Mary's surprise must have shown on her face. So Elizabeth told her why she knew, how she knew. And she explained about how the baby leapt within her. That was one clue. I think the other clue was that Elizabeth was also immediately filled with the Holy Spirit. And therefore, she was speaking God's words here when she spoke. Now, another further thing, I'm skipping a lot of stuff that's in your books and your notes, so make sure you do read your notes. Another thing to mention with regard to Mary's meaning, uh, meeting with Elizabeth is how important it is for Christians to fellowship with one another. You know, the hearts of these two women really benefited from their time spent together, and they did spend three months together. I believe that Mary stayed there until John the Baptist was born, because figure Elizabeth was six months pregnant, and she stayed three months, we know that. She stayed until the birth of John the Baptist before she went back. But they needed one another. They encouraged one another. They understood one another. And I'm sure that they strengthened one another for the days that were ahead for both of them. 
And so we need, that's why a woman's Bible study is important because women need other women. Young women need older women. Mary need Elizabeth. She needed Elizabeth. And, and, and older women need young women. And they need to see young women as a ministry as well. Okay, let's look at a song of praise, for, verses 46 to 56. Um, did I tell you that what Elizabeth spoke is called the Beatitude? Now, there are, in the Sermon on the Mount, there are the Beatitudes. This is called the Beatitude, singular. And now what we're going to look at is what Mary spoke, and it is called the Magnificat, just in case you're interested in those terms. Starting at verse 46, this is Mary speaking. She says, and Mary, it says, And Mary said, My soul doth magnify the Lord, and my spirit hath rejoiced in who? God my Savior. Make sure you see that verse. For he hath regarded the lowest state of his handmaiden. For behold, from henceforth all generations shall call me blessed. For he that is mighty hath done to me great things, and holy is his name. And his mercy is on them that fear him from generation to generation. He hath showed strength with his arm. He hath scattered the proud in the imagination of their hearts. He hath put down the mighty from their seats and exalted them of low degree. He hath filled the hungry with good things, and the rich he hath sent empty away. He hath opened his servant Israel in remembrance of his mercy, as he spake to our fathers to Abraham and to his seed forever. And Mary abode with her about three months and returned to her own house. I'm not going to have time to get into this. I'm going to spend a whole lesson just on the Magnificat. It gets its name from verse 46, where Mary began her praise by saying, My soul doth magnify. That's Magnificat in Latin, I think. Uh, and notice that this fact, notice the fact that this hymn magnifies the Lord. The whole thing magnifies the Lord. It does not magnify Mary. Um, just briefly, first of all, she thanked God for having favored her, and she referred to herself as a humble handmaiden of Israel. Um, she praised God for resisting the haughty and the proud, the self-righteous, while exalting those of low degree, in other words, exalting those that are humble. And she exalted the name of God because he fulfilled the promises that he had made in the Old Testament. You know, she knew about all the Old Testament covenant promises. It's very obvious that Mary was very studied in the scripture from this um, song of praise here. She had definitely hidden the word of God in her heart. And it comes out now, her familiarity with the Old Testament comes out in this uh, song of praise. We find that a lot of the things she said were right out of the Psalms direct quotes even from the Psalms. And obviously also she was very familiar with Hannah's song of praise, which is found in 1 Samuel chapter 2. We also see her deep humility. She was chosen by God to the highest honor a woman could have, and that is being the um, Messiah's mother. And yet she spoke of her own low estate. She didn't get puffed up and think, wow, I really must be some special young woman that God chose me. She didn't have that attitude at all. Most importantly, she acknowledged her own need for a Savior. It's very interesting that the very first person to call Jesus Christ Savior was his own mother. You see, if she needed a Savior, what does that tell us about her? She was a sinner, just like any of us. She was born in sin. She didn't have a virgin conception. She needed a Savior, and she knew it. So those who teach the sinlessness of Mary,
teach so in direct contradiction and conflict with Mary's own testimony here because she knew she needed a Savior. All right, we, we learned she stayed three months and um, then she returned home. And you know when she would get back to Nazareth that she was going to have to face some mighty, mighty mountains. But her three months being refreshed with Elizabeth, I think, really prepared her spiritually for what she was going to encounter. Because when she walked back into Nazareth, everybody was going to know she was pregnant. She would be three months pregnant. Okay, that's the announcement to Mary. Let's really, really quickly look at the announcement to Joseph. And under this section, we're going to look at his dilemma, his dream, and his duty. But... Um, most of it you're going to have to read on your own. I'm just going to highlight some things. Let's begin by looking at Matthew 1. You'll have to go back over to Matthew now. Matthew 1, we'll look at verses 18 and 19. And notice, too, it's interesting that it took Matthew um, 17 verses to give us the human genealogy of the Lord Jesus Christ, but only one verse, just as in Luke, to give us his divine genealogy. And that's what we find at the end, verse 18, is the Lord's divine genealogy. All right, beginning at verse 18, it says, Now the birth of Jesus Christ was on this wise. When, as his mother Mary was espoused to Joseph, before they came together, she was found with child of the Holy Ghost. Okay, there is the, gene the divine genealogy of Jesus right there. Then verse 19, Then Joseph, her husband, being a just man and not willing to make her a public example, was minded to put her away privately. How was Joseph, the righteous carpenter from Nazareth, who was betrothed to Mary, how was he going to accept the fact of her premarital pregnancy? Well, try to put yourself in his sandals. You did with Mary. Now let's try to put ourselves in Joseph's shoes. Mary had been gone for three months, okay? And upon her return from visiting her cousin, she was obviously pregnant. Now, being the type of person that she was, I forgot to put that picture up, we can be sure that as soon as Mary got back, she went straight to Joseph and she told him all about her experience that she had had with Gabriel. She did not tell Joseph before. She went to Elizabeth to confirm that this was going to be true found out it was, and it wasn't abnormal for them not to see each other. Remember, they're still in that engagement period. So now that she returns and she's obviously pregnant, first one she goes to, maybe she went to Mama, I don't know, but she went to Joseph and she would have told him about her situation and what had happened. Now, being um, the type of person that she was, a godly, I'm sure that's what drew Joseph to her in the beginning, although they probably had an arranged marriage, but he was attracted to her because of her godliness. You can be sure of that. He, um, and, and also, well, I, let me finish that sentence. Being the kind of person she was, he didn't want to have her stoned to death, okay? Um, but also, he knew that he was not the father. It doesn't take much for a man to know that, right? He knew he had never had any relationship with, with her. And so, it, what would you think? If you were Joseph, I mean, you know, Nazareth, after all, was a rough, rough, tough military town full of Roman soldiers. So it's possible that Joseph thought that Mary had had sexual union, whether willingly or unwillingly, with probably a Roman soldier and then had promptly left Nazareth for three months. At any rate, what he did know 
is that she had come back and she was pregnant. So his dilemma was really a double one in that he was a righteous man, tells us in verse 19. And because of his righteous moral standards, he realized that he could not go through with the marriage because of her situation, her obvious unfaithfulness. So he knew he had to end the marriage. However, because of his righteous love and his kindness and the just kind of person that he was, he didn't want to put her to death, and neither did he want to shame her. She'd get enough shame as it was, but he didn't want to bring her out into the open and publicly shame her, as was the Jewish custom. <clears throat> Actually, the historical records of Jewish and other ancient people verify to us the seriousness with which people looked at pregnancy out of wedlock in those days. Um, the Egyptians, for example, this is horrible, but the Egyptians would take the unwed pregnant girl and they would cut her nose off. And they didn't have plastic surgeons in those days, so for the rest of her life, she would go around and shame, and everyone would know because of her, look, her not having a nose that she had had a child out of wedlock. Well, the Persians went a step further. Not only did they cut off the girl's nose, but they also cut off both of her ears. Can you imagine? I'm sure that really helped to keep them pure, though. I would think. I don't know. Oh, sure do it with me. Well, that which is interesting to consider with regard to Joseph is that there is no evidence that he ever even displayed anger or resentment or bitterness. He, he had been greatly shamed. I mean, this was a shameful thing to him. You know, it, it made him lose face. And yet, we find that his primary concern was really for Mary. He didn't w wish to disgrace her by making her a public example. Um, so he would put her away privately, and what apparently what he was planning on doing was to go and get a bill of divorcement and do it privately. And uh, again, I want to point out that we see no evidence of wanting to retaliate, you know, in revenge or, or hurt her. So in all probability, because he was a godly man, he probably um, took, took his situation to the Lord. And the Lord answered. So let's look at uh, verses 20 to 23, Joseph's dream. But while he thought on these things, behold, the angel of the Lord appeared unto him in a dream, saying, Joseph, thou son of David, fear not to take unto thee Mary thy wife, for that which is conceived in her is of the Holy Ghost. And she shall bring forth a son, and thou shalt call his name Jesus, for he shall save his people from their sins. Now this all this was done that it might be fulfilled which was spoken of the Lord by the prophet saying and here's Isaiah 7:14 behold a virgin shall be with child and shall bring forth a son and they shall call his name Emmanuel which being interpreted is God with us. Emmanuel with an e is the Greek spelling Emmanuel as you'll see it in the Old Testament is with an i that's the Hebrew spelling of Emmanuel God with us all right so it was while Joseph was burdened with his difficult dilemma that the angel of the Lord appeared to him in a dream and it, he gave him the answer to his problem here. He said, you know, that which is born in Mary, you don't have to worry, it wasn't a Roman soldier, by way of a Roman soldier or any other man. It was by way of God, the Holy Spirit, and she shall bring forth a son. You shall call his name Jesus, all again with capitals, and he will save his people. So that is, in a nutshell, is his dream. Let's look at his duty, okay, and we'll close up. Verses 24 and 25. Then Joseph, being raised from sleep, did as the angel of the Lord had bidden him, and took unto him his wife, and knew her not, this is another important verse to underline, and knew her not 
till she had brought forth her firstborn son, and he called his name Jesus. All right, we don't know anything more about Joseph's reaction to his God-sent dream, except that he immediately and dutifully, what? Obeyed. He, he just did it. He obeyed it. He didn't express any doubt or any suspicion of that message that was delivered to him, even though it was in a dream. And uh, he, he was a righteous man, and we can be sure that he was greatly relieved to know that his beloved Mary had not been unfaithful to him. He also must have been very happy that he didn't have to stone her to death. He didn't have to go out and get a bill of divorcement. He could take her to be his wife, which is exactly what he did. And also, think about this. He must have been very, very humbled to know uh, that he was give, being given the task of being responsible for raising and teaching and nurture it, nurturing the very Son of God. God with us, you know, the, the Messiah. Could you imagine the responsibility of that as the head of the family? It's just an awesome responsibility that God would entrust his only begotten son into a family where Joseph was to be um, the breadwinner and the spiritual leader of that family. And that's just, you know, really, that really uh, above everything tells us that Joseph was a godly and righteous man. I mean, God would not have entrusted this responsibility to a man with, with any less character because what might have happened if Joseph had been of a different character? When he heard that Mary was pregnant, what would have happened if he had had her stoned to death? She was pregnant with the... Right. She was pregnant with the Savior of the world. Satan would have succeeded, but God picked the right man. He picked a man named Joseph, and I don't think Joseph gets quite enough credit for his role in, um, in all of this. He was, he was definitely a good person. Notice I did tell you to underline verse 25 where it says, He knew her not till she had brought forth her firstborn son. That is a very important verse. I'll close with explaining this, but it's important for two reasons. Number one, the inclusion of this verse prevents skeptics from saying that the birth of Jesus Christ was merely the birth of a premature baby, okay? If Joseph had had union with Mary at three months and then six months later Jesus was born people could say skeptics could say he was a preemie baby he was born at six months of age that's all he was born the natural way from the union of his mother and father now even though babies at six months didn't live in those days that would really be rare they could still say this you see so that's one reason for we having this verse in here Secondly, it stands as scriptural truth against the perpetual virginity of Mary. In other words, that she remained a virgin her entire life. But what does it imply when it says he didn't know her till she had brought forth her firstborn son? It implies two things. First of all, that he did know her after she brought forth her firstborn son. And you know to know means to have union, okay, physical union. So he did know her after the birth of her firstborn son. Now why say firstborn if she had only one son? Obviously, it was her firstborn son because she had a secondborn son and a thirdborn son, etc., etc., okay? We also know that Mary was not a perpetual virgin because the scripture tells us of her other children. And we know that they weren't born in this miraculous way, only Jesus Christ was, because with their births, she was no longer a virgin. 
And if you want to look in Matthew 13, verses 55 to 56, and Mark 6, 3, it tells us of her sons. She had at least four more sons, and she had at least two daughters. So that refutes the perpetual virginity of Mary. Okay, I thank you for your patience. That was a long lesson, but we got it all in. I really appreciate it. Let's pray. Father God, we do thank you so much for your word being the final authority for our faith and practice. We thank you that we can rely on it, every single word, because it is your word and it is true. We thank you, Lord, for the virgin birth of Jesus Christ, that his blood is, un it is clean, it is uncorrupt incorruptible blood, it is precious blood, and is by his death and the cleansing of our souls with that precious blood that we can be saved through all of eternity. Lord, I thank you for the uh, women and their hunger to know you. I pray that you will fill them and that they will be satisfied and bless them, each and every one and their families, for having spent this morning in your word, getting to know you better. We pray that you take everyone back home safely and bring us again next week. For we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.